Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shane Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Roark. Guys, I'm here today with my good friend, Dr. Jules Benson. He is talking about a new white paper. It's a couple uh, it's a couple white papers, actually, on brachycephalic dog breeds that have been uh, out in the, last, uh, in the last couple of months. Guys, this is a fascinating discussion on the dark sides of brachycephalic breeds. This is the real... I love, I love the little guys, don't get me wrong, um, but they got real health problems. And uh, in this episode, we talk about a huge data set that Nationwide has put out uh, talking about the claims that they see in brachycephalics and extreme brachycephalics and how the differences break down between those two types of dogs. What's an extreme brachycephalic, you say? Hang on and you're going to find out. But this is a great episode. We talk about what are the risks. We talk about where are they coming from. We talk about what can we do about them. We talk about how do we approach this as an industry, like what are our options here? Uh, how bad is the problem? How severe is it, how great a risk, all those sorts of things. It's really a fun conversation. You're going you're gonna to soak it up, I promise. Gang, uh, thanks so much to Nationwide for making this episode available ad-free. Let's get into it. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame. With Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jules Benson. How are you? I'm very well, Dr. Andy Rourke. Uh, thanks for being here, man. I, I, so good to talk to you. I always enjoy when we get to catch up. It's, it's been a long time since we've known each other. It's been, uh, it's a, the industry's just this small, right? I was thinking, I, I was actually thinking that when we got on. Uh, so I, how long have I known you? It's been years. Like, it's been um, a decade, I think. Yeah. It has been at least, at least 10 years. Did I, I met you at, uh, at one of the formal galas? I think I think that's where I, I met you at one of the big conferences yeah. and, and it was like a, it was like a sure. dinner thing. There was a glass of wine involved. Oh, you and, ha- yeah. and you had this great accent. And I was like, <laughs> it's like, I also have a great. I also have a great accent. Uh, the silly voices like this Elmo and this me. And I think I, I probably got the better the better end of that scale. <laughs> love it. Oh, man. So for those who do not know you, you are the chief veterinary officer at Nationwide. That's true. And uh, you have been doing a number of, of really interesting projects. And so you've you've got some white papers that came out uh, recently that I want to ask you about. Yes. So here, here's why I want to ask you about this, is why I was really interested in this topic. So uh, so I I've been you know, on social media for a long time. And, and I really like to, to share a lot of puppy and kitten pictures and kind of kind of joy of practice type stuff. And about, it's probably been about eight, 10 years ago, when I would start to post pictures of certain dog breeds, I started, at first I would get, I would get tons and tons and tons of likes, but I always would read through comments and, or people would send me emails and things. And, and I started to get some pushback on these, on these beautiful, adorable puppy photos. And they were some very well articulated arguments about me sort of, uh, you know, highlighting, highlighting these dogs because they were brachycephalic dogs. And at first I was like, you people, people you need puppies. to, you right. need to find some joy in the world. Like you're, who, who criticizes puppy pictures? Really? How, how upset do you have to be? And, and then they continue to come. And as I said, generally, unfortunately, they were very well laid out arguments about the health uh, detriments of brachycephalics and, and, uh, and what is our role as veterinarians in. There's a difference in 
taking care of pets and being accepting of pet owners and being encouraging of, of this thing that they, that they love and also not perpetuating breeding habits and, and things that lead to health problems. And we do have a responsibility in that regard. And, and, and those arguments, honestly, this is a place in my life where I initially did not like this position, but, but I looked at it and, and I looked at sort of the data and what they were saying and, and I ultimately kind of, I, I came over to that side of the table to say, yeah, I still celebrate those pets when they come in, but it's going to be, it's extremely rare for you to find brachycephalics on my, on my social media, not because I don't love them or think that they're wonderful or beautiful, but just because I do have concerns about perpetuating, you know, the, the short nose in, in dogs and what that means for their health. And so you guys put out, and it's kind of uh, under your Sir stewardship, these these white papers come out uh, from Nationwide talking about brachycephalics and risks of brachycephalics uh, as far as their health and and uh, and insurance claims that are being made. And so, I, let me let me just pause right here for a second and say, can you can you tell me a little bit about about the research you guys did and sort of where it came from? Uh, just at a high level. Yeah, for sure. So so we start this. Um, one of the nice things about working, you know, in the, in the insurance world, and one of the reasons that I'm you know, still so drawn to it and so passionate about it is that being a an enormous uh, unapologetic data nerd there are things that we can do like if you think about being in your practice and you can say okay how many how many dogs do we have with pancreatitis right you can run you know a, a search for cpli test that you ran but you can't really say how much do people spend on pancreatitis within your practice right the, the advantage we have is that when people send their claims in from veterinary clinics right so it's, we're getting the information from the clinic we are typing those claims. So we know that it's pancreatitis, we know that it's brachycephalic, we know that it's pneumonia, right? So we, we have really good classification of those data. So to me, being able to drill into those data and provide that back to veterinary healthcare teams and owners, that's the real value of, of you know, of, of what we can bring to the table. So for this, uh, we did some work on cancer last year. We did three work, uh, three papers on cancer. We did one on aging pets. Uh, we'll do another aging pets uh, later this year. But brachycephalic was something we wanted to get into just because it continues to be, uh, and, and I don't know how much you follow the news, especially in the UK, there's a lot of really, um, I think, positive activism about brachycephalic and about you know breed predilections in the UK. Yeah. The British Veterinary Association, to your point around using photos, did a really good job about, I think it was about 10 years ago, providing guidelines to industry of saying that we don't want you to show some of these dogs in these situations and this is why. It's, it's similar to like using dogs with collars and tags, right? We, for a long time, I think we've, we've had a, a, a degree of activism in the industry to show, to say you shouldn't be using pictures of, of dogs without identification on because, yeah. it, because it sends the wrong message. And I think this is a similar vein in that of saying, okay, well, you know, so anyway, so we looked at practice about like dogs and we're kind of guided by the data. The way that our team approach it is that we, we have hundreds of thousands of years of, of dog data to look at. And then we let the data guide us into, you know, what is most interesting about these? Where are we seeing the spikes in claims activity? Where are we seeing them? Uh, massive differences between them versus other groups of breeds. So you have to classify those brachycephalic, then compare them against other purebred dogs that don't have that that defect, if you like, um, in terms of that, you know, forcing that soft tissue uh, into a, into a, a shorter nose but occupying the same space. Um, and so we we, we were always guided by the data. So that's where we, we arrived at this. 
And this is kind of where we found we we tripped into this extreme brachycephalic space. Yeah. I don't know if you, are you familiar with that term. Well, before? I wasn't until I read it in the white paper. So so yeah, you have a, you break them out into brachycephalics and extreme brachycephalics. So that was actually going to be my first question: is sort of talk to me about that. Um, talk to me about that distinction. So we we had done some work of brachycephalics previously, and I think one of the criticisms was you're including some breeds and not others and why are you doing that right and so i think we wanted to take a really science-based approach to this and so in the white paper actually there's a methodology that goes along with it we identify the 15 or so brachycephalic breeds that we use in the analysis and those are all breeds that were um identified in at least three peer-reviewed papers okay. so as, as we started looking at this we noticed among the data there were some pretty big um differences between a few of the breeds and the peer-reviewed papers, several of them referred to extreme phenotypes and were classifying those quote-unquote extreme brachycephalics. Okay. And so um, whenever I present on these data uh, and, I, and I ask people, you know, what are the extreme brachycephalic breeds that you would expect coming out of this, people people nail it, right? Oh, it's English French Bulldogs, it's English yeah. Bulldogs, and it's Pugs. Yeah. Um, and and the, the diversion of those in the data is massive. Like just, and, and you know, you can see in the white paper, I know you've taken a look at it, we can talk about some of the numbers, but just talking about brachycephalic dogs on mass, I think is misleading unless you're breaking them out into the, into, because it really is specific breeds who are driving, you know, the, the, the difference in claims activity among that, that class of breeds. Okay. Yeah. That's, that, that that makes that makes a lot of sense. How uh, when you look at brachycephalics in general, it's because you guys look at uh, you get claims from every different type of breed, and so it, it's really great. One of my favorite things you guys do is put out just most popular breeds every year, and it's just an e it seems like an easy data pool for you. But I'm always fascinated in what are the breeds that that people are 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 bringing to the clinics, and so talk to me a little bit about the popularity of brachycephalic dogs. Like it, where where are these in uh, the frequency of the patients that we're seeing? So overall, um, brachycephalic breeds, and we looked over the past decade or so, and we said, okay, from 2013 to 2022, what is the change in popularity, if any, of brachycephalic breeds overall, right? So we're talking about everything, boxers, cavaliers, you know, Las Apso, French Bulldogs. Is there a change in overall population? And there was a little bit of a bump. It was about 19% to 21% of our purebred dogs. Okay. So there was, a, there was a bit of a change there. But when you actually... Um, break those out into extreme versus non-extreme brachycephalics, the positions are pretty much switched. You know, the 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 it used to be that the non-extreme brachycephalics were much more popular, and over the past ten years that has reversed, and we've seen a massive change in the in the upswing of of extreme brachycephalics, and that is driven frankly by one breed. So the the French bulldog the French over bulldog. the past ten years. Has it was nineteenth most popular purebred that we insured in two thousand and nine, two thousand thirteen. Sorry, and it is now the third most popular breed. Wow, that that's that's I mean meteoric rise, right? To go from nineteen it's a, it's to three a, a in five, ten years, a five times increase in in the in the you know, the, the popularity of the breed in that book. So it's just it's a, it's stratospheric, and um and it's happened fairly gradually um like over that time hasn't just been because i think we think about like uh those fads right the chihuahua yeah Valley hills chihuahua like we see those things and there's like overnight suddenly there's a million more of these dogs but for franchises it's been pretty gradual over the past 10 years um but it's problematic i mean it, it's um and we can talk about the, the data but it's um i think the normalization of some of the behaviors that we see and some of the health issues that we see um 
I think it's I think it's a really tough situation and, and you know, you and I have talked about this before, being in the clinic with people who all they wanted to do was get a dog that they, they want to bring in their home and love and everything else and and we know that sometimes, you know, pet families aren't always doing all the research they can or they're so captivated by the persona they see in the media yeah. or whatever else. Um, that there's not always a, a good heart versus head um, conversation going on. Well, at this point, it's sort of a self-perpetuating cycle, right? Like if you if you like, say, Frenchies, they're everywhere. And so how could they be a problematic? Like, how could how could this be a problem when I just see them everywhere? You know, people people wouldn't have them all over the place if they if they were a dog that had health problems. And I, I understand people just kind of having that immediate knee jerk reaction. This isn't some strange rare breeds you never see these are the most one of the most common breeds out there they've got to be a good healthy <laughs> vibrant breed and you go mm, <laughs> no. mm. and and how and the the it's, it's funny we'll, we'll we'll talk a little bit later perhaps about how do we help this but i think the the, the popularization and the and the i mean even watching the super bowl ads right i think it was you know miles teller and his girlfriend were dancing around with like super fun ad of them having a great time with their frenchie yeah and not another that, that can't happen it's just one of those situations of like how, how do you insert yourself awkwardly into that conversation and say you know hey hey fun police here yeah like, oh. know, no no <laughs> yeah i don't like to be that too even as i said that even as i said the last line i'm like oh you know i don't know i i don't I, you see the you see people and they are they love their little Frenchie and the Frenchie is an adorable you know happy little dog and you say I don't want to I don't want to be the fun police and and especially waiting until someone has made the lifetime commitment of the pet to then say oh by the way uh, let me tell you some bad news that doesn't feel good either now we we. I, I want to, before we leave, I want to take this and turn it around into an action steps. Like how do we, without, without, without stomping on people's hearts, like, and, and, and while still maintaining the trust and, and relationship that's going to get them to bring their pet back so we can continue to work with them. Like how do, what is it, what is it useful for us to say to them? But before we get into that, I, I, I want to just pause here for a second and say, we're speaking in these vague terms about problems and you know and and claims uh, sort of spiking up lay, lay out for me what what are the risks specifically that we're talking about so i think if you it's the 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 white paper kind of delves into this in more detail but very generally when we look at the um category of things like respiratory disease or res right. respiratory is that how you guys say can i respiratory I, is how i say it yeah <laughs> I also say so, brachycephalic, as you say brachycephalic, and we're clearly. I, I was recording. I'm not I, yielding like, on this. I think I said brachycephalic and brachycephalic two sentences apart. And I'm like, I have to go back because <laughs> I have no idea how to say this anymore. So I think I say brachycephalic. Um, so if you look at the 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 respiratory disease category, right, and we're talking about everything from infectious, you know, tracheobronchitis to pneumonia, like all of those diseases, in extreme brachycephalic dogs, compared to non-brachycephalic purebred dogs, okay. they are five times more likely to submit a claim for respiratory disease. Okay. Five times. Uh, for ocular disease, it's about the same. They're about five times more likely to submit a claim for ocular disease. So these these two syndromes, we could talk about in more detail, brachycephalic ocular syndrome, which frankly, I wasn't that familiar with. I think, I mean, I, yeah. I just assume that, you know, when I see those exophthalmic dogs, they're going to have problems. But apparently, you know, this has been looped into a, into a the syndrome now, brachycephalic um, ocular syndrome. And then the other biggie really is uh, brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome, right? Which I think to me, 
that is, I think that's the most terrifying area. Because when we look at brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome, you can't compare the, the, the rates of disease in brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome with non-brachycephalic dogs, because it doesn't exist. That, that, right. was, that was always terrifying to me of saying, like, we're, we're, we're looking at, so we compared extreme brachycephalics to non-extreme brachycephalics. And those extreme brachycephalics, of those, the French Bulldog is 17 times more likely to submit a claim for brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome than all the other dogs that still have brachycephalic you know, uh, yeah. uh, uh, phenotypes. That's mind-blowing. Like 17 times more than the other brachycephalic dogs. And, and a million times more than the, the non-brachycephalic dogs that don't have brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome at all, right? So again, like that's that's the, the, the leap for me. Is that We're not just saying it's much more common in these dogs. We're saying it exists exclusively in this group of dogs. And these dogs, this particular breed, are 17 times more likely than the rest of them to get it. It's it's absolutely mind-blowing. Um, and so for, for, for Boas, the other thing that we looked at specifically was if dogs are affected by Boas, are they more sick in other areas? So if you have a, if you have a, so we compared Boas Frenchies with non-Boas Frenchies and, and it gets worse. So if you have a, a Frenchie with Boas, they're five times more likely to have a claim for pneumonia than a non-Boas Frenchie. Yeah. They're twice as likely to have a claim for spinal disease as a non-Boas Frenchie. So these wow. these really extreme affected dogs, they're not just sick with BOAS, they're more sick with other conditions as well. Well, I'm I'm really surprised by the by the spinal condition, right? So it, it makes total sense if you've got you know so the the brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome is, is like a uh, hypoplastic trachea, elongated soft palate, uh, everted laryngeal saccules, um, stenotic nares, right? Like tiny little nostrils. And so I, if, unless I'm wrong, those are, the, those are four sort of pieces of it. And so if you have those things, then it makes sense that you're more likely to have pneumonia, right? You're not, you're not. Esophageal disease with the negative exactly. breath. Yeah, exactly. So, so those things make sense. Like, I completely understand you get some sort of respiratory, like possibly kennel cough that, that advances, you know, secondary disease uh, following that. that. That don't make sense to me. But, but, you know, but spinal abnormalities is not something that I would, that I would immediately say, oh, that makes sense. Well, and, and, and so talking to neurologists, we talked to a board certified neurologist about this. And, and when I was at school, um, we were told that, you know, the Daxons were, were the, the, the poster breed for IVDD, right, for, for sure. cerebral disc disease. And I think, again, this is a stat out of thin air that I was told, but, but the Daxons have a prevalence 10 times all other dogs kind of rolled together like it was that extreme. And you look at it now, we'll have um, data on IVDD coming out later this year, but now they're, 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 about, they're similar. So Frenchies no. and Daxons, absolutely. No. So the, the prevalence Knock of IVDD. Feather. No. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when we talk to neurologists, they say that the, the, the degree of disease anecdotally from what they've seen is more severe in the Frenchies than it is in the, in the Daxons. I have, so the, I have not been talking about this in the exam at all. I still, I still talk to the dachshund owners when they come in their dachshund puppy and you know, uh, it's sort of that, it's a you know, wonderful pet. Let me just tell you what I recommend for all my dachshund owners just to cover our bases. I, I have not been leaning into that with my, with my brachycephalus. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, and, and again, it's, it's, it's Frenchies more than others, but actually, you know, um, we see it in some of the English bulldogs as well. And we see, you know, and I, I, we, we haven't even talked about eyelid disease or heat stroke or any of those other types of things, but they're also amplified in dogs with boas. So the boas dogs, we've had some really interesting and, and you know, the, the, the so what out of this, right? Like, what, is, what does this mean or what can we do about it? I mean, I think, I think having these conversations, even like IVDD, like I wasn't really aware of it either because I've been in practice full time for 10 years. And so I haven't seen this explosion of dogs and I haven't seen 
you know, what, what apparently, you know, the clinicians say to me like, yeah, it's French, she's an IVDD. That's exactly wow. what we're seeing now. Yeah. Um, and so I think getting the word out there, um, enabling clinicians to have better high quality conversations. And for us, taking some of the, um, the pressure off clinicians by providing the data and saying, hey, look, you know, look at these data. Like this is, this is, this isn't just me and my experience. This is, you know, hundreds of thousands of dogs and this is what we see. And let's create, let's create an awareness plan and an action plan from that. And so everything from, you know, those dogs with, with the um, ocular syndrome, you know, even down to if they have extreme exothalamus or lagothalamus, like talking about dogs, like if you're going outside or talking about, you know, topicals, like long-term, even educating pet owners, you know what it's like when you say to them, you know, when they call in and they say, you know, does the eye seem painful? And they're like, I don't know, it's red. And it's like helping them understand the difference between, you know, injected sclera and what a painful like corneal scratch looks like. I think getting that education up front, you know, I think will save eyes and will save people, you know, time and money. Uh, and then around the the respirating disease, um, I think just helping them understand like what they're looking at and, and in the kindest possible way, denormalizing this, right? This is, as much as this is something that is known in the breed, the snuffliness and the inability to breathe in certain situations, helping them understand that you should not be outside with your dog in extreme heat, that you should not be exercising your dog in humidity, that these are things that are actually dangerous to the, to the, to the health of your dog. And then even as we look at the, the other thing the data told us was that for Frenchies especially, it's a disease of young dogs. We're seeing those claims come in 75% of the time in dogs under two years of age. So having a, a, a valuable conversation about early intervention, and we've talked to some researchers in Brazil uh, and a couple of others um, who are, I think that the jury is out fully on the, the full benefit, but early surgical intervention with some of these extreme breaks of Alex may actually lead to to better outcomes. And maybe one of those one of those situations of, you know, um, and, and perineal urethrostomy is the one we talked about, right? Is an, is an early surgical intervention actually better long-term than waiting to put the three strikes on the block cat? So I think this this is a similar situation, it looks like, and we're still digging into the data on that. So let, let's start to talk about Let's start talking about taking this in a positive direction, right? Let's let's talk about let's talk about action steps. Let's talk about education. You know, we've already talked about when 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 people come in and they've got these pets and they are excited about their their new their new English bulldog, their new Frenchie, their new pug. Um, I don't want to like that's not that's not the time necessarily to to talk about choosing your breed after they've chosen their breed. Uh, so so talk to me. You know, if you had your magic wand. And you were going to alter the way that sort of veterinary medicine is talking, educating, working with pet owners right now. How do you start to approach this? Like, what what are some ways where you feel like we can make some inroads to start to to, as you said, denormalize uh, the the practice of Alex? Which I, I like your way of putting that. And and I think there's I think you're right. There's two aspects to it. There's how do we how do we with all, with all the love in our hearts and all our professionalism, how do we um, talk to the 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 owners of pets? Of these pets who who already have them, right? Because so that you know we're not we're not suggesting they give them back or you know like rehome them or whatever else. Like you, you've made that decision. Let's help you have the best life with your pet possible. And so I think it's exactly that. It's as early on as possible having a a conversation, raising their awareness of the abnormalities within the breed. Of basically saying, hey, you've got a breed, great personality, but there are some known issues with that. And I don't think it's that much different from talking to 
you know, uh, a Great Dane owners about orthopedic disease. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, the people people choose their breeds and there are issues with them. Some some people know them, some people don't. I think making sure people are aware of the diseases and of what the signs are of when veterinary intervention should be called on. Like, people don't know what heat stroke looks like. You know, heat stroke is incredibly dangerous. Mm. And if people don't know the first steps to take, same thing with eye stuff. Like, I mean, the, the people letting eye stuff go, that's how you that's how you lose an eye with a dot like this, right? And the same thing with respiratory disease. Even even making them aware of, you know, there's things that we use for cardiac disease, resting respiratory rate. Like we can use that for 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 um compromise of the of the respiratory system as well. Like if you're if you're, you know, looking at your dog, hey, just take twenty seconds and count their breaths. You know, how how does how, how does it look compared to last week, compared to last month, compared to the month before? Just getting them into the habit of of being aware that there are issues with their dogs. So I think that's the that's the the, the first um, side of it. The second side is: Is it possible to decrease the popularity of these dogs? And again, this is this isn't us being the the morality police, but this is: Can we reduce the 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 overall suffering or increase the welfare of the dogs under our care? And I think uh, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people in the space, and I think there's some great thoughts around more responsible breeding programs. I think the issue with that is that while there's still a dollar to be made. I think irresponsible breeding programs will continue to to crop up everywhere, right? If, as long as you can sell a French bulldog yeah. puppy for $5,000, I think you can talk to good breeders until you're blue in the face. And I love the OFA are bringing out a brachycephalic scoring index to to try and increase the health of, of the offspring. But I think it does come down to trying to sway the public and just having conversations, um, exactly to your point around, hey, if I'm thinking of getting a new dog, if, if you have the chance to intervene and to have a conversation about, you know, the dogs that people are thinking about getting um and people loving the personalities uh, again just encourage just encouraging them to look at the data to know what they're getting into and having that emotional you know financial and you know just just overall management aspects of having a brachycephalic dog with boas or with brachycephalic ocular syndrome it's a lot for people and sometimes they don't know what they're getting into so I think if 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 they see the personality, there are other breeds that we could suggest that have similar personalities that don't have some of the same problems. Yeah, that that absolutely makes sense. Uh, I'm gonna see if I can run down the OFA brachycephalic scoring index, and I'll also put links to the white papers uh, in the show notes here. Are there other resources that you really like that you'd point out? I think the 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 other side of this um, is that we're trying to build this uh, base of um, evidence based medicine really to try and drive spectral care decisions. So I know that Dr. Emily Tincher came on and talked to you about that a little while ago and encouraged people to check out that episode. Um, but really, I mean, we can go to um, thespectralrefcare.com, which we'll, we'll put in the show notes. But I think that that gives a really good insight as to another reason why we're doing this. It really is about education boundaries, but it's also about what are the best courses of treatment. So looking for the evidence base around things like early surgical intervention, for example. Yep. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I'll, I'll definitely link that up as well. Jules, where can people find you online? Uh, where can they follow you? Uh, LinkedIn is, is where I do most of my damage these days. Um, and people are welcome. Anything that we have that's new, um, it, and, and I think it's worth uh, saying that the, I think the white papers, we, we love the work we're doing there and we love the, the, the stuff we're translating into the space. But great to keep an eye on us. I think later this year, we'll be making that more accessible for more breeds, more veterinary healthcare teams and more pet families. So we're really excited about the work that we're doing and kind of what's what's coming down the pike. So watch this space. That's fantastic to hear. All right. Thanks so much for being here. Guys, thanks for tuning in and listening. Everybody take care of yourselves. Thanks, Andy.
And that is our episode, guys. That's what I got. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to Jules uh, for being here. Thanks again for Nationwide for making this episode possible. Guys, take care of yourselves. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.